BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, February 13th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Look, we're back together again. Yay! Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So for the past year or so, I've realized that I have had an obsession for actually many years previously, but I've decided to try to put it into a creative work. And this is my obsession with the passage of time. So I've actually been working on a concept album. It's going to be chamber music, voice and string quartet. And we're going to explore... I'm starting to get nervous, by the way. (laughs) There's going to be science eventually. We're going to explore how humans, the human relationship with time. Uh, So... When across my desk came a book by Alan Burdick, who's a New Yorker writer and just a a really great journalist called Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. I couldn't wait to read it. Aren't we bad at telling time? Yep. Oh, excellent. (laughs) So it doesn't matter if we're having fun or not. Time is something that eludes us. Well, you know, it's for one thing. What Alan starts out his book talking about is the fact that time is the most common noun in the English language. So... All of us are thinking about time at some point. And of course, nowadays, you know, we talk about time going by so quickly with like, you know, everybody being able to contact you at any time. Does that like actually, you know, take away all the free time that you have? We don't decompress. We're, you know, working around the clock. And there's so many like blog posts and self-help books about how to bring back your time. I mean, Tim Ferriss has built an empire (laughs) on uh, making efficient use of time. But at the same time, <laughs> there's this notion that do we actually know how the brain clocks time? And for a long time, people have talked about, sorry, I guess this is why time is such a commonly used noun. I feel like I can't. You can't not, <laughs> not pun not right use now. It, right. Um, but, you know, we, we've been talking about or we've been hearing about all these different oscillators in the brain, these different circadian clocks and circadian rhythms in all of our cells and so forth. And so I feel like we are starting to understand a little bit more about sort of the biology of how our bodies 
clock time. But to me, that's still really fascinating because in a sense, you know, the more we learn about physics and space time, time becomes this kind of relative thing that maybe even is expanding or contracting depending on how much gravity there is, which doesn't at all jibe with how I perceive it, which is just as this, you know, steaming locomotive that just incessantly goes forward no matter what I try to do. I just wear a watch. I hope you actually recorded a super long interview just to see if people <laughs> notice if time flies while this goes on. Well, I guess you'll all have to come back and tell me uh, whether you lost track of time during that interview. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Alan Burdick on why time flies. Alan Burdick, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I was surprised that you were early. <laughs> I'm getting better. I'm getting better. So the reason that I was surprised, of course, is because in the beginning of the book, you talk about your relationship with time. And it reminded me of the old adage that we study that which we lack, the thing that yeah, we're bad at. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. It's very true. And I and I, it's true. I start out, you know, with this sort of cockamamie philosophy that I seem to remember I got from Yoko Ono that I'm just not going to wear a watch. And um a, writing a book about time, and B, taking 10 years to do it, uh, have really changed that philosophy. So one of the things that I found really fascinating right from the beginning is the way you describe how we measure time and how ultimately it's just a social construct. There isn't really a kind of single definable time out there Time is something that we have to agree on, and it's meaningless unless it's in relation to something else. Yeah, I, I've been thinking, I've been really thinking a lot ab about that recently. And, you know, so in the book, I, I go into the fact that time is actually a lot of different experiences that we sort of lump under one word. But I think the the main one, certainly the main one that interests me, and I think probably most people, without ever thinking about it consciously, is our experience of now, you know, what now is, and I don't mean like now, like today, but like now, right now. And it's, uh, you know, now kind of comes up in our lives all the time. And it's what clocks do. It's, you know, you, if you have a clock, there's a clock on the wall, right, right behind us. And it's, it can serve as a timer, it can tell us how much time has passed. But mostly what it does is say, oh, it's, you know, 415 right now. Well, but 4.15 is only meaningful if it sort of directs you basically to another clock. Either it's telling you, oh, it's 4.15 in the 24-hour day of the sun, and then you can look out for the sun and kind of make sure that's going on, or it's 4.15, and that means I have to be, you know, at the school play at 4.30, where they also have a clock, and they're going to be starting on time at at 4.30. And that to me is really interesting because right away it captures the one of the interesting psychological phenomena about how we perceive time, which is that it varies. So if I'm really engaged in an activity, time can seem to fly by. If I'm really bored, boy, does that second hand seem heavy and slow. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, we sort of think about time speeding up or slowing down at kind of two levels, I would say. One is at the local level, like at the dinner party or the movie or the or the play, you know, over the span of maybe, you know, a couple of hours. And then time speeding up or flying by over a span of like weeks or months or years. 
And, and those are kind of two different things. At the local level, certainly, you know, when we say that time is flying by, really what we're saying is I lost track of the time. I mean, w- when I when I realized that and wrote it down in a sentence, it just seemed so circular, it seemed stupid. But I think that is what we are saying. Time flew, you know, you come out of the movie and you had a great time. Wow, three hours flew by. Well, you weren't thinking about the time. You lost track of time. Whereas if you spend that three hours being totally bored, a lot of what you're doing is looking at or thinking about the clock, how long till I can leave. You're, you know, like 50% of your of your brain is filled with clock thoughts. Yeah. And, you know, there's this whole phenomenon, too, that David Eagleman has described, which is this notion that we feel as if time slows down when we're a height in a heightened emotional state. So, you know, he mm-hmm. did that experiment where he had people like, you know, fly off this ledge <laughs> and and free fall for a you know amount of time and, and he wanted to see whether or not they could actually perceive more uh sort of va- fast stimuli than than we should. Um so what what in your readings and, and your understanding of the the science of how that time expansion or contraction on a kind of uh, almost microscopic level in terms of our perception happens, um, you know, where are we in terms of understanding that? Well, to a certain degree, it depends a little bit on who you ask. But I think, you know, I think one of David's ideas that, that's really interesting is that what we perceive as duration, you know, how long something lasts over, you know, a couple of seconds or maybe a minute is basically an expression or outward manifestation of neural coding efficiency. So, for instance, um, this is this is a famous optical illusion. If I show you a series of identical images, you know, a shoe, a shoe, a shoe, a shoe, a shoe, the first one is going to seem, and, and each one is, you know, half a second long, exactly. The first one is going to seem to you to have lasted longer than all that follows. Likewise, that's called the debut effect. And likewise, if somewhere in that stream of shoes, I show you something new like a boat, that too will seem to last longer than the other ones. That's called the cameo effect. And what David has has kind of concluded is that, you know, actually what's going on there, you know, you see an image of a shoe and then the next, you know, two, three, your neurons, like, you know, it's a shoe, your neurons just don't have to do as much work and and they become more efficient. And, you know, so it's not so much that that first one lasts longer. It's just that all the ones that follow actually seem to last shorter. But because you don't actually have a clock in your brain against which, you know, it's not like you're measuring longer versus a clock in your brain and shorter versus a clock in your brain. You're just measuring those two durations against each other. And so you come away feeling that, you know, the longer one lasted longer, but, you know, really it's just getting easier for your neurons to do what they need to do. And then suddenly a boat comes along and they're like, wow, boat, you know, let's get back to work to work again, you know? And it, it's kind of tempting to think of that. It's like high definition, but really it's standard definition and everything else you've been fooled by your mind into thinking is, you know, standard definition, but it's really some kind of degraded, you know, channel. Yeah. So you also remember, you know, those kinds of oddballs, you know, better. So I, I want to talk about how our memory affects our 
perception of our perception of time. Um, But first, I want to tell you a a kind of a story that was a little bit of egg in my face. Um, The night before the election, I gave a recital in which I sort of talked about how the brain tracks time and then did some singing to show that. And I I showed a version of the, you know, debut and cameo effect and my stimuli were um, the cameo was Donald Trump. And I (laughs) joked about how it lingers just a little too long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, now I just want to make me cry. But um, in any case, there is this uh, phenomenon where we remember certain aspects of an experience more vividly for whatever reason. It was more painful or more, more emotional or different in some way. And that leads us to remember it as having lasted longer. Yeah. So h- how good are we actually at understanding our own experience of time if we are often fooled by things like our memory of it uh we're we're terrible and 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 that's the thing is is again there's it's not like there's actually a clock well you know it's not like there's actually a clock in your brain like there is in a in, in a computer i mean you do a lot of timing with your brain but it's a, a distributed process but it's also not a clock that is actually there like measuring real time, you know, against which your strange experiences um, are measured, telling you that it's taking too long or taking too short than real time. Again, all you all you have is your brain monitoring its own activity and trying to kind of interpret it in some kind of language that your conscious mind can understand. So, so you end up with things like longer and shorter, but it's just longer and shorter compared to each other. And it becomes a little easier to understand maybe why our sense of duration is so easily fooled because there is no baseline. And yet we we sort of often hear about all these different circadian clocks in our brains and in the rest of our bodies. And, you know, it gives us the sense that there are these oscillators that function a little bit like a kind of, you know, wristwatch. And so how accurate a representation is that? Are there any... Is is there a, any kind of baseline clock in our bodies that keeps ticking uh, in a way that is similar to a regular clock. Yeah, definitely. That that is that is what circadian clocks are. And 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 but the you know the world of of circadian clocks is is pretty distinct from the world of you know temporal perception. You know there probably are some overlaps and people are exploring it, but it's it's pretty much two different fields. And so you know what circadian rhythms are, um, and really the best way to think about it is not in terms of your sleep cycle, but your body temperature. So if you look at your body temperature over a 24-hour period, very reliably, it is lowest in the early morning before you wake up, and it's highest in the middle of the day. And if you chart your body temperature over a series of days, it will mark out 24-hour oscillations. And you might think, well, that has to do with uh, the sunlight, but, but no. You know, if you go into a cave or a closet, you know, for two weeks or a month, that rhythm will still be evident. And so it, but it's not just your body temperature. It's pretty much every physiological function that you have oscillates on a 24-hour cycle. So, uh, you know, your adrenal glands are uh, less active at night than they are during the day. Um, your, uh, Your liver is less active at night 
than it is during the day. You actually metabolize alcohol worst at around 10 o'clock at night. Oh, just when I have my glass of wine. So maybe that's a good time (laughs) to be drinking your glass of wine. Um, And all of these, you know, all of these cycles can actually be traced back to, um, you know, distinct genetically based clocks in your cell. So each of your, each of your cells has a 24 hour clock of its own that it beats out primarily to kind of keep some order within all the activities it has to do within the cell. I mean, just like us, you know, at the macro level, there's all kinds of whatnot going on inside there. And it's like things got to happen in a certain order and they got to happen in a certain time. Most of all, and you like you need a clock to do that. How, do we know how that works in an individual cell? Yeah, we we do, actually. Uh, and, and this was, you know, this has been teased out over many years and, and first in fruit flies and then mice and, and kind of gradually expanded. But so basically, within the nucleus and uh, within the DNA, there, there are a pair of genes that um, code for two protons out in the out in the cytoplasm. So you know, there's a, there's some like messenger DNA that gets sent out there, and and uh, these two pro- they, not protons, these two proteins get manufactured. And um, they build up in number, more and more and more of them, and eventually they seep back into the nucleus. And what they do in there is turn off those two genes. So it's this feedback loop where, you know, the genes turn on and they create something that eventually will turn itself off. And then, you know, those proteins kind of fade out and then the genes turn back on again. That whole process takes 24 hours. And... From what I remember, it takes just a little bit longer than 24 hours. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That's the thing. So it's a little bit longer than 24 hours. Maybe in a few people, it's a little shorter. But but the key thing is, it is not exactly 24 hours. That is to say, it's not exactly the same as the length of the solar day. So, you know, you go into a closet for, you know, two weeks or a month and your circadian cycle is still, you know, beating along and it's 24.2 hour, uh, uh, you know, cycle. But, you know, after a few days, you're out of sync with the 24 hour cycle of daylight. You know, you might think it's noon, your body might think it's noon, but you go outside and it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, you describe uh, a sort of a, a self experiment that an individual in France did on himself, where he went into a cave and, you know, describe what happened. Yeah, he this this was a, 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 a geologist uh, named Michel Sif, who in the 60s discovered a cave, a deep cave in France, and he thought, um, I want to go in there. And, and, and at that time, a couple of things were going on. Um, you know, it was becoming apparent that, um, that humans have circadian rhythms. We'd known about it in plants for a couple hundred years. It became evident in animals. And then then some kind of experiments involving sending people into bunkers kind of demonstrated that we have actually these circadian cycles too. And so he gets this idea, I want to go down into a cave and remove myself from daylight entirely and, and from all kind of human contact and see what it's like to live without time. And he, you know, he's kind of monitoring his, his body temperature and other functions and, and keeping all the data. And sure enough, you know, he demonstrates that he has a regular circadian rhythm and that moreover, it is slightly longer than 
the 24-hour day. Yeah, and and one of my favorite quotes that that you attribute to him is that you know he came out and he was like, uh, you, "You guys kind of brought me out of this cave early. I was supposed to be here for 60 days, and it's only been you know 35 or whatever." Yeah, yeah, yeah. He thought less time had actually passed than really had. Which is remarkable when you think about uh, so many science fiction tropes. Like, you don't need to send people into some other dimension. You just need to put them in a cave. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, that was kind of the other incentive at the time. In the 60s, it's it's the height of the space race. And people are worried about, you know, nuclear Armageddon. And so there's some thinking going on like, well, you know, what could we as humans like survive in an environment where there are no other people or there's no sunlight? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I always thought that the reason that our free wheeling or free running clock is a little bit longer than the 24 hour cycle is so that we can allow the movement of the sun to reset it every day. So we can kind of like, be attuned to our environment. Is there any evidence that that's remotely plausible? Um, it, it's, it is possible. I mean, I think, you know, really, all organisms have a circadian clock. Um, you know, animals, obviously, um, but, you know, plants too. I, cabbage, there was a great study done at, I think, Stanford a couple of years ago that showed that cabbages um, have expressed a 24-hour circadian cycle. And, and they release these chemicals at like in the morning and at, at night when insects are most likely to attack them. And that is what makes them taste good. Hmm. Uh, so, which is to say that, you know, cabbages taste better at certain times of day than another. And that remains true even uh, for some weeks after you cut them. Hmm. But anyway, so this is all to say that, you know, circadian rhythms have been around like maybe even since the very, very beginning. And one of the things that you, that, that having an internal clock does for you is that it enables you to kind of predict what's going to happen. Like, if you, you know, if, if your job is to photosynthesize, you could just wait until the sun shows up and you fire up all your photosynthetic machinery, or you can have a clock that kind of gets things going. You know, it's like, oh, I, you know, I know, you know, sun's going to come up at seven o'clock. Let's get ready a little early and then we'll be totally ready to go when the sun shows up. Right. Um, but of course, you know, I mean, the earth is round and so not all parts of the earth get the same amount of sunlight at all times of year. You know, at the equator, you know, it's pretty equal night and day, but not so at the poles. So maybe, you know, maybe that variation, the fact that our circadian rhythm is slightly off uh, the 24-hour day is, is trying to take that into account somehow. I don't know. That's just a thought. And and I think one of the things that uh, you know is it has become much more obvious to me in my you know recent years is how different my perception of time is from a child. <laughs> uh, and as I get older, you know, it does you know it's it, it seems silly to say, but it certainly does seem as if things go by more quickly. And it's probably because my neural processes are slowing down. But um, what is different about the way that kids process time compared with adults? Um, there's some really interesting work being done. I spent a lot of time with a, a researcher named David Levkowitz, who is a developmental psychologist now at Northeastern University. And he has spent a lot of time studying babies and, and you know, from like a few weeks old to a few months old, trying to understand how they perceive 
time. And, and, and again, let's, you know, let's kind of remember that time means a lot of things. And, and what he's trying to understand, so there's this problem in, in neuroscience called the temporal binding problem. And that is, that stems from the fact that, you know, at every moment we're being kind of bombarded by different kinds of data from the outside world. And it comes to us at different speeds and it gets processed in the brain at different speeds. Like if I flash a bright light and a dim light at the same time, the bright light will reach your visual cortex before the dim light does by the difference is like 80 milliseconds. Um, so if you think like, if you're like some downstream neuron trying to like backtrack and figure, so like you've got these two streams of data coming in, not at the same time, right? And you're trying to figure out, well, like, do they belong to the same event or not? You know, when, like when, when did now happen and what happened in it? Um, so we as adults have that problem, but, but babies do too. And, and like, it's like the first thing they need to do when they come out of the womb is figure out like what is now and what is not now. Um, it's, it's such a key experience. And, and so what, what, uh, David Lefkowitz does, he, he's done a number of really interesting studies where he puts eye trackers on, on babies and he has them, uh, uh, basically observe, um, computer monitors as part of the, uh, as part of his, his experiment. So in one, there are two computer monitors on a table you see uh, two sets of lips moving, the same set of lips. But as an adult, you can kind of see that they're saying slightly different things. There's no sound. They're just, you know, lips moving, saying something. And then suddenly the sound comes on and you can hear a voice. And the voice matches one of the two screens. And as an adult, like you, you instinctively know which one it belongs to. But now it turns out the babies do too which is really weird because they don't know anything about language at that point, hmm. right? They have no idea what's being said. You could, you know, you could do it in Spanish and, and an English speaking, well, you know, a baby born in an English speaking household would still immediately be drawn to the lips that match the sound that he or she is hearing. You could hmm. do, they, he, David Lefkowitz did it with, uh, monkey faces and monkey sounds and, and babies could totally figure it out. So what do you realize? He, so then he does the same experiment and without any voices or anything, he just does a, a, a plain tone. And he realizes that bas basically the baby has an instinctive ability to match the beginning and the end of the tone with the beginning and the end of the movement of the lips. So it mm. has a really, like in some sense, it has a super sensitive sense of, of synchrony. Right? Yeah, which as you described, of course, like the visual system is getting input at a time rate that's different from the auditory system and somewhere in the brain, you know, there's an association area that's pulling the two together and matching it up. And the fact that it seems to happen instantaneously, you know, it does seem like a very difficult problem for a young brain to solve. Yeah. And yet, you know, as, as you're describing, it's, it's a problem that's solved very early. So what do you feel that that tells us about either brain development or the binding problem? Well, it, it's, it's kind of a, a very simple way for, um, you know, I mean, kids come into the world knowing nothing with no experience. And it's a very simple way of kind of organizing the world. What happens together belongs together in time, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, okay, 
that that happened now. That happened now. That happened now. Again, like to adults, that seems like a totally banal, intuitive experience, but it, it's it's not to a kid because a kid has been, you know, a kid has been in, in a womb, in a womb, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, it can hear in the womb during the third trimester, but it's not till it comes out that it has to deal with visual information too, and 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 especially synchronizing visual information with audio information. And not only that, the baby comes out and it, it can't really see more than about six inches away. So it can't see much. And what it mostly sees in those first few months is its mother's face. Because, you know, the mother has her face right there or the father. And, and so that face becomes the dominant sensory experience uh, it, it, you know, certainly the dominant visual experience. And it becomes kind of like a sandbox for learning synchrony, learning what now is, learning how to synchronize audio and visual streams. And, you know, gradually it becomes a much more kind of intuitive process. But the weird thing is like now if, if you and I were watching TV and everything's fine, but then suddenly there's some lag in the, in the signal and the lips moving kind of get out of sync. If they get out of sync by about more than about 80 milliseconds or about a tenth of a second, you and I will notice it and we'll be really annoyed by it. Mm-hmm. But a baby, if the, if the lips and the, and the sound start out together, but you move them apart, you can move them apart by about two thirds of a second before the baby really begins to kind of look around and, and suspect that something is going mm-hmm. on. Hmm. Um, which, which kind of seem, so in a sense, you could kind of say that the, the baby's now is a little bit longer than ours. It's certainly a little bit more forgiving, uh, about what, what goes in now, um, Mm -hmm. than, than the adult's interpretation is. And one of the other things I found interesting was how you described that, um, okay, so even kids, even if they're getting this binding problem solved, or at least starting at solving it pretty early on, they don't really know the difference between before and after until f- relatively late, like age four or so. Yeah, yeah. Piaget did a lot of interesting work with kids um, in the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, often with his own kids. He'd had a conversation with Einstein, actually, after the first Davos conference. And, you know, Einstein's interested in in space and time and he asked Piaget, like, so what goes on in a baby's brain? Like, how does it process space and distance in the same way that it it processes time? And Piaget's like, that's a really good question. Let's find out. So he starts doing these really fun experiments with kids, including, you know, he'll put two wind-up trains on the floor. One moves faster than the other. He puts them on the floor and they go. And, of course, one goes farther than the other. And he'll ask the kid, you know, did they start together? Oh, yeah. Did they stop together? Yeah. Um, did they uh, go for the same distance? No, no, no. Uh, did, they, did they go for the same amount of time? No. <laughs> and, and, and so it's like the, the kid is not quite disentangled distance from duration. Hmm. Um, and it takes, you know, a certain amount of just experience in the world before that gets teased out. Um, and the same thing, uh, a kid kind of grasps past tense and, and, uh, and present tense, you know, will speak using those 
tenses perfectly well by age two or three, but um, doesn't quite understand the difference between before and after until about age four. So you hmm. could ask Johnny in January, you know, which is going to come first, Christmas or your birthday in July? And Johnny will say Christmas because he's thinking backward to the mm -hmm. month that just happened. Um, it's, you know, it, it's mm -hmm. like before and after have the same, they're equivalent. <laughs> it's it's interesting because my son now is obsessed about what's going to happen after his nap. And he has mm. he has two naps. He has a nap in the afternoon and then the long nap, he calls, which is the nap at night. And he's always asking, what's going to happen after? What's going to happen mm. after? <laughs> But I guess I also have noticed that if I say to him, as long as I tell him what's going to happen after, the amount of time that elapses doesn't matter. Right, right. <laughs> uh, except one time when I went away for two weeks, and now he's obsessed with, are you now going to go away for two weeks, which he knows now is a long time. Now he knows it's a long time. <laughs> um, there was a great study that I just could not squeeze into the book uh, by a sociologist named Catherine Nelson, who's, who's now retired, but she's at City University of New York where uh, a colleague of hers, and, and this study took place about 30 years ago, uh, a colleague of hers had had a child. And, you know, as, as you know, like when you put your kid down for a nap or like right after he or she wakes up from the nap, they like to talk. And they will talk even if you're not there, mm -hmm. right? Just like jabber, jabber, jabber. And so, uh, you know, Catherine Nelson's friend, her daughter is, you know, two years old and just jabbering her away. And, and Catherine Nelson gets the idea to record what it is that this kid is saying when nobody else is around. And, and so she, she collects like three years of self-conversation. And she analyzes it in this fascinating book called Narratives uh, from the Crib. And basically what she, what she figures out is that what's going on in there is that it, it, it's it, the the kid is kind of using that self conversation in a sense to figure out what time is so when the kid is really young what what that self conversation or that that kind of monologue contains is all kinds of bits and pieces of information that it has gathered from mom and dad and but it but it doesn't really know like you if you tell a kid at age 2 that you went to the empire state building the kid doesn't really understand that that is your memory, that that happened to you. As far as that kid is concerned, you know, a trip to the Empire State Building, like it's part of its memory, it happened to him. Um, and, and so the kid is kind of using bits of language, piecing them together, talking aloud about its own memories and your memories, and it's just trying to sort it all out. Mm. And, and it's really kind of a sandbox for A, figuring out language, but also figuring out like temporal order, you know, what happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Like kids really love scripts, especially at that age. And if you, you know, if you diverge from the script, you know, heaven forbid... <laughs> Um, and, and what comes out of that conversation, what that conversation is all kind of building towards, Catherine Nelson argues, is basically a sense of self. So it's not until a kid understands that your memories are yours and not its own, and that its own memories are his or hers, uh, which happens, you know, three, four years old, maybe five, that, um... That it can begin to understand like, oh, those memories are mine, which means that I was me 
yesterday. I was me last week having those experiences. I'm me today. I will be me tomorrow and, you know, in the future. That, the, the self is basically a sense of self through time. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, one of the reasons I studied memory, uh, you know, for my PhD was because I thought it was such an integral part of who we are. Like our identity is based on what we can remember and how we put it into this narrative of self. And so in a sense, you know, that is a, str- a relationship that we have with time, you know, and memory. Um, and I-, I guess I shouldn't be uh, shocked to hear that the majority of a child's, you know, inner mental life surrounds this concept of themselves in time, um, especially given that, as you say in your book, time is the most frequently used noun in the English language. Yeah. Yeah. I think the second one is year. <laughs> and then amazing. man and woman are like, you know, four and five. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that really tells us that I, I, I always thought I was just, you know, uniquely obsessed with time. <laughs> But I guess I'm not alone. No, and and it's I mean again like it, a lot of what kids are trying to figure out is that what is going to happen next? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what just happened? How long ago did it happen? I remember my kid, one of my kids when he was three, he started describing this this vivid experience he'd had just the week before of his babysitter coming by and saying hello and giving him a big smile, and I was like, well, Josh, that actually happened three months ago which meant nothing to him. And he went on to say, well, when is it going to be three months again? <laughs> well, no, when is it going to be three months ago again? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of mind boggling. And then, it, you know, it, it, as, as we can't help projecting ourselves into the future, nowadays, you know, I start to wonder, what am I going to be like in my, you know, 80s, and hopefully I'll make it to my 90s, looking back. And, yeah. you know, so what changes in terms of our relationship with time as we get into old age? That's a good question. I mean, certainly we all have either said or heard, you know, the phrase that time seems to be speeding up as we get older. And I, I, I spent some time kind of unpacking that in the book, because it's actually been studied quite a lot. And um, some of the studies are helpful and some of them are not. And it was kind of useful to see like what, what the bogus ones were. So, you know, early on when, when scientists kind of thought about how they were going to tackle this question, you know, does time really speed up as you get older? Do the years really go by faster as you get older? And so starting in like the 70s or so, you start to see studies where they, you know, they ask people, they, they do surveys of college kids or older people, how much faster does a year seem to be going now compared to uh, when you were younger to, you know, or, or 10 years ago or 40 years ago? Now, never mind the fact that simply asking the question kind of tells you a, a rough ballpark of what the answer should be. You know, people would say, oh, it's going twice as fast now as it did 40 years ago. Or they'd give some number. And then, and then one of the scientists actually came up with a formula in which you could kind of put your age now and uh, your age then. And you could actually come up with, with a number that said, oh, you know, time is going X percent faster now compared to when it did then. But the problem, the, really the problem is that, you know, if I asked you what you had for lunch 10 days ago, 
you wouldn't remember. And here I am in a study asking you to tell me what your experience of time was or how fast a year seemed to be going by 10 years ago. You have no idea. You just cannot get reliable data out of that. Nonetheless, what those studies basically showed was that 85% of people said, yes, time, the years seem to be going by faster now than they did before. Time seems to be going by faster now. Except the problem was that everybody said it. 85% of 20-year-olds said it, 85% of 80-year-olds. So like, if it was actually happening, you would think that a higher percentage of 80-year-olds would say it than 20-year-olds, but it's not. But more recently, some, some really uh, quality studies have been done where they ask a slightly different question, and it's this. On a scale of minus 2 to plus 2, with minus 2 being very slow and plus 2 being very fast, how fast or slow would you say the past week has gone by? Hmm. What would you say? Uh, one. Okay. How about the past month? Uh, zero. <laughs> okay. How about the past year? Oh yeah. I would say one, maybe two. How about the past 10 years? Two. Okay. So in general, the, the average response is one fast. People say it's moving fast this week, this month, this year, past 10 years. They say that when they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, everybody at every age says that every time span is moving fast, which like logically doesn't hold up. But obviously we're having all some, I mean, we're having some sort of common experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, I mean, what the studies do show is that a sense of time moving quickly does kind of correlate with how busy you feel you are. Which again goes back to this thing: like if you're busy, if you're engaged, um, you're not really thinking about the time. But that, that's what I wonder: like if you retire, does time really seem to go by more slowly because you don't have as many things to fill up in your day? On the other hand, you know, I see, you know, my my in-laws and my mom, like, you know, for her to get three things done in a day, like it takes all day. Whereas, you know, yeah. I get those three things done in the morning and I'm ready to go. You know, right? So, do they just fill their days? You know, it's like, it's like, you know, work expands to fill the time allotted kind of thing, even when you're retired or does, you know, is there, can we really look forward to a time later on in life when we feel like we can actually uh, slow down this fast pace of time? Well, again, like the way to slow down the pace of time is to look at the clock, right? <laughs> what you really want is time to go by quickly, right? The, the ideal experience is one in which you're not thinking about time at all. And in fact, a study in geriatric homes showed that the people who are most likely to say that time was going by quickly were the people, older people, who were more active and who were generally happier. And the ones who said mm -hmm. it was going by slowly tended to be depressed and tended to be less active. Hmm. So, you know, ideally, you're so you know, you're so involved or so engaged in whatever it is you're doing that time is flying by because you're not paying attention to it. But of course, you don't know that time is flying by because you're not paying attention to the time, which is the, the whole idea here. And you don't really notice it until the end, right? <laughs> and you look back. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that's not really an experience that most of us will have. Yeah. 
So I want to remind or let our listeners know that Alan's book, Why Time Flies, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I want to ask you one last question, which is, you know, it seems, of course, like we're living in an ever quickening world as things become easier to do, you know, so the world is at our smartphone tip and so forth. And maybe we're going to come up with some major uh, scientific or physical advances. What do you think will be our experience of time like 100 years from now? And do you think it'll be different from today? Um, or do you think that this is a, a problem or this is an obsession that we will always have and even if we can extend our lifespan to 150, it's still going to feel too short. I think it's going to be exactly the same. I mean, mm-hmm. th- there's a great poem from the Roman era in which in which the guy is basically complaining about sundials and how he hates how they chop up the day into little bits, <laughs> right? Which is exactly the experience that we still have. And maybe in the future, you know, we'll find our way to like chopping it up into even smaller bits. And we will find it just as annoying as we do now. <laughs> well, now, I mean, now we have the four-hour work week and the one-minute interval exercise. Yeah. and But um, that's, I guess, what we have to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Alan Burdick. Great to be here. Thank you. So one of the things that Alan and I actually ran out of time to talk about is how clocks get synchronized in the world, like how there is, you know, the official time and how clocks get that information by pinging things and how your phone gets the information from GPS. And it's this really fascinating thing that, you know, he he talks about there's this one clock, which is really just a stack of papers. It's just a stack of numbers of, of sort of, you know, pings that have been made. And that is the most accurate clock in the world. Wait, is that the atomic clock? Is that what the stack of papers is? That's what I always thought it was, is there's an atomic clock somewhere in like Colorado and somehow they get readings from it and beam it out to satellites and that gets beamed down to everyone else. Well, there are a bunch of them and <laughs> different. I mean, there's one, there's like a, a, but there are there are these, you know, kind of councils of people who have to agree on which clock now is right. There's like literally human beings like, on a committee. Literally human beings have to come and bring together all of these different, you know, measurements of time. And then they have to agree on which one is going to be the one. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, I mean, clearly I don't understand it well enough to give a coherent explanation of what it's all about. I, I can't tell if that's the greatest meeting to be part of or the most boring meeting ever. Well, except that it also highlights the fact that time is so social. Like time is meaningless unless it's in relation to somebody else. Even a clock needs to know what time it is relative to all the other clocks, right? Otherwise, it's, its information is entirely meaningless. And yet, you know, I, you know, I just take it for granted now that my phone always has the right time and that it syncs with all the other phones around. And, you know, our clocks are getting better at that. I mean, the clock in my car now automatically syncs and changes and so forth, as opposed to me having to move it. Uh, although I do have this one really cool ticking clock right now in my office that um, Bassam Shakashiri gave to me, which is called Chemistry Time, and it's it's you know elements. Do you think you could survive if we removed all the clocks from your life for a day? Ah, you know, I think I would. I mean, I think I would find it really liberating, but I also think I would get very little done. <laughs> Certainly, be late for that important clock meeting. 
<laughs> yes. We're the council of clock people. Where you look at a stack of printouts and decide which one is the right time. I don't know. But anyway, that was what was a cool finding. A cool thing that we never really got to talk about is the fact that, you know, time really is just a social phenomenon. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for sharing your time with us and joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Kyle Raihala, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you so much. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your official time, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by our time cop, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Gian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.